For those remaining, if you are able, please stand for this rather long reading of God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while the young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During these many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The word of the Lord. Well, as we are continuing, uh, just at the very beginning of this series of Exodus, perhaps you're already realizing one of the great things about the Bible is it communicates to us in so many different ways. Sometimes it speaks to us directly, and sometimes it shows us. And the key as we're reading Exodus is to realize that as it's telling the story, it's showing us something. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we can see what it's showing us. Would you please actually join with me in prayer as we prepare? Father, uh, we thank you that you, um, that you show us what is true that you open up our eyes and awaken us to what is real. And uh, that's my prayer for us this morning, that 
whatever the things that are occupying our attention, uh, whatever we feel worn down by or distracted by, that right now uh, your spirit who is with us would open our minds and our hearts, that we might see the reality of you being with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my uh, favorite films, and some of you know this because I've actually mentioned this in one of my sermons before, is The Matrix. I realized that if there was any doubt about my nerd credentials, that's completely gone. I know actually it was probably gone quite a long time ago. But, you know, The Matrix, there's things about it that I like that are cool. I mean, it is cool. I mean, I mean Lawrence Fishburne in that trench coat and the sunglasses is just innately cool. And you've got the, the action scenes, of course, that are neat. But for me, what, what sticks with me about this movie is, is the central idea. And if you've seen it, you know that what it's fundamentally about is this premise that, that what occupies people's attention, the world around them, their responsibilities, their day in and day out things that they're sensing, none of them are really what's going on. In fact, they are hiding from their eyes what is real. As, as the great Morpheus says, in, in this matrix, in a prison for our mind, we are experiencing a world that has been pulled over our eyes to blind us to the truth. And the idea is that there is this hidden, deeper reality that very few recognize, and if they did, it would change everything. And what I really like about that movie is there is an aspect to that idea that is absolutely right. I mean, I think we sense it beyond all of the hype of the, the iPhone 10s and the Tesla S's, beyond the noise of all the news of who is saying what and what's going on where, even beyond the anxieties and responsibilities that occupy our attention, there is a deeper reality that is often hidden from our eyes. There's a sense that we are in the matrix. I mean, we feel that, don't we? We feel, I mean, has it ever happened to you where you go through the day and at the end of the day you suddenly realize, I have not thought of God at all. Like, didn't pray to him, didn't thank him, didn't trust in him. I am a practical atheist today. Have you ever felt that frustrating feeling? I know I have. And... And there's an aspect to it that it's because that's the world that is around us. We are in an age where everything is about what is here and what is now, and there is almost no space for the transcendent or the eternal. So when people look for truth, where do they go? They go to the internet or they go to science. When, when people look for purpose, they're told to listen to their heart. That's where they go. When, they, when they're looking for something to hope in, what are we supposed to hope in? Believe in yourself. And when we are looking for joy, where do we go for joy? Well, we just find it in the things of right now, in family, and the simple things. See, the issue is not that we are in a culture that has stopped believing in God. I mean, it's very rare, not very rare, but it's not that common for people to be outright atheists. Most people acknowledge a belief in God. The problem is that God just doesn't matter. He's redundant. He's been replaced. And so as a consequence, he is hidden from our eyes. And so it's such an easy thing to kind of just skate on the surface of reality 
to be preoccupied with whatever the world puts directly before our eyes, the next thing that we're supposed to do, the next thing we're supposed to be doing, and never actually come to grips with what is real. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we content to live that way? Now, Scripture, really on every page, is meant to awaken us, to call us out of the busyness, to awaken us to this deeper reality with words like holy, transcendent, and God. And I want to say that this morning, this passage, which in some ways seems like a subtle, basic story, is actually a story that is inviting us to look deeper and to recognize that there is a deeper reality to what is seen in these verses. So it begins with a fairly ordinary beginning, you know, two people who are from Israel meet each other, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids. First kid is a daughter, and so inevitably after the baby is born, they probably have two years of sleeplessness trying to figure out what you do with a kid. And then the wife becomes pregnant again. And so you have the multiple months of, of pregnancy, and then the labor, and then the midwife says, congratulations when the baby is born. It's a boy. And that news for the mom is, well, we should say it's complicated. On one hand, as she sees him, he is one of the most beautiful things she has ever seen. She is filled with pride, and yet there is fear. Because she knows the law of the land that Pharaoh has said, we talked about this last week, that any boy who is born to the Israelites needs to be thrown into the Nile River. So for about three months in an act of civil disobedience, she hides the child, praying that any time an Egyptian is near, that this will not be the time that the child decides to just wail. Eventually, she comes to realize that she's not going to be able to keep the child hidden anymore. And so in an act of desperation, she takes a laundry basket, essentially, and, and covers it with pitch so that it's waterproofed. And she comes to the edge of the Nile River amongst the reeds and, and, and puts the basket down in the water. And then with tears in her eyes, she takes her beautiful baby boy and puts him in the basket and walks away. Now, she doesn't leave the basket alone the sister is still there. The sister has been hiding, and for hours upon hours, who knows actually how long, she just sits and watches to see what happens. And eventually it just so happens that one of Pharaoh's many daughters and her entourage comes, and Pharaoh steps into the, Pharaoh's daughter steps into the river to bathe, and she notices in the distance a basket. She gets one of her maids to get it. She hears this wailing child, and as she kind of pulls over the blanket, she realizes this is a Hebrew child. And unlike her father, when she sees this child, her heart is not hardened, and she doesn't go, we need to kill him. Instead, she is filled with compassion, and she cares and in that moment, this baby's sister does something impulsive and does something brave, and she just steps out into view and says, excuse me, I notice you happen to find a Hebrew child. I think you might be in the market for a nanny. I have just the person for you. Now, I, I should tell you that we should not assume that this princess is dumb. She can read the signs. She knows what is going on in this moment, but she doesn't care. 
So she, with the sister, goes to the house of the baby, to the baby's mom, and hires the mother. And for the next five, six, seven years, that baby is being raised without fear in his mother's and father's home. And, and over that time, I think we're meant to understand that that time of being raised, he is told of his story, that he belongs to God, that his great-great-grandfather Abraham received these promises. He's brought up in the knowledge of what it means to be an Israelite. And eventually, when the baby no longer is the age of nursing, it's now maybe, as I said, five or six or seven, Eventually, the time comes for him to be brought to Pharaoh's daughter, who will now adopt this child. And as she adopts him, she names him. And the name she gives, him to, gives to him, of course, is Moses. So the story then fast forwards a couple of decades. Moses is now an adult. He has grown up as an Egyptian. He has been taught by the finest teachers. He's experienced affluence. And yet, we find out that he still identifies deep down with his people, with the Hebrew people. And we know that because we're told that he goes out to look at his brothers. That's what it literally says, his people. It means his brothers. He identifies the Hebrews as his brothers. And he sees a slave master brutally beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And he's finding himself in this moment of decision, a choice that is going to be defining to him for the rest of his life. And in this choice, he decides to identify with his people. He seeks to protect the person being beaten. He attacks the Egyptian after looking both ways to make sure no one else is looking. He kills him. And he quickly buries him so that the evidence is gone. Now, now what are we supposed to make of that moment. Is this, is this a good thing that Moses does? It's interesting, the story doesn't actually give us any instruction. We're, we're left with the ambiguity. On one hand, there is something praiseworthy about Moses saying, this is my people and I will defend them. And yet on the other, is, is this the right way for him to be this one-man vigilante murdering someone? The fact that he does it with such hiddenness implies that even he doesn't believe that it's the right thing to do. Except it's not really hidden, as he finds out the next day. The next day, he goes out and he sees now two Hebrews fighting, and he's dismayed because there should be unity among his people. And he says, why are you doing this? And one of them turns to him and says something that completely causes his life to come crashing apart. He says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? So, so there's two things about this that is haunting to Moses as he hears it. One is that last line, do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? He realizes that what he thought he had done in secret is not in secret and it's become known and that terrifies him. But there's also an edge to that first statement, who made you prince? Who gave you the right? And Moses realizes nobody. He had just made this choice on his own. He just had arrogantly assumed that he can be the one who helps save his people. And now he has been exposed. Have you ever had it happen to you where someone says something and it just cuts beyond all of your defenses and it just tears you apart? Because Moses, 
In this moment, he is feeling this combination of, of fear and terror, of embarrassment, of shame. So what does he do? Well, he does what is natural to him. He runs. He runs away. He goes completely out of Egypt so that Pharaoh won't get him. He goes to the middle of nowhere. He collapses at the side of a well so he can get a drink. And as he is there, there's these women shepherds who are coming. And he notices that there's these men shepherds who are going to kind of push the women shepherds away so that they can. And so he decides to help the women shepherds. He makes sure that they can uh, feed their sheep. He helps them with that. The women shepherds go home. The dad hears about it and is so impressed that he ends up uh, asking Moses to join in the family business. And he ends up marrying one of the daughters. And so for the next decades, that is his life. Moses the shepherd in the middle of nowhere. And if you're wondering how he feels about that, well, you should notice the name that he names his firstborn child, Gershom, which just means exile, refugee. And for Moses, that would be basically like naming his son failure or loser. Because that's how he has identified himself, that he has failed. He no longer called the Egyptians his own people. He can no longer do anything for the Israelites from his perspective. He is meant to live the rest of his life as a shepherd in the middle of nowhere with no connection to his family. And that's how our story of chapter 2 kind of concludes. And, and at first glance, what we have here is kind of a tragic story, a story of great potential that seems to be squandered by an impulsive decision. But there are details to this story that invite us to look deeper. And the first comes right at the very beginning when it speaks of how this baby is born. You might notice the strange line that says that the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a fine child, literally it says, and she saw that it was good. Now when we hear, and she saw that it was good, we are supposed to immediately remember something that's repeated again and again in chapter 1 of Genesis. God creates and he sees that it is good. God makes something else and he sees that it is good. And so when we hear this, we're supposed to realize it's the same thing going on. There is an act of creation that has taken place with the birth of this baby. God has stepped in and done something miraculous and it is good. Really, that's true of, of every birth, isn't it? I mean, the, the entrance of a baby into this world is more than just a sperm and an egg and a little of luck. It is something amazing. A, a human soul has entered existence. That's a miracle. If you've ever been in a room where a baby is being born or you've held a brand new baby in your hands, there is something about that moment where you, where it's like reality suddenly becomes clearer and you realize that something amazing has taken place. It's like the curtain is drawn back and you see God has done something. He has created this child and it is good. And so this is this first clue that something deeper is going on. But there's another clue that's just a few verses later. This, this little boat that is made, the, there's a word that's used for it in Hebrew, and it's a rare word, and it's only used in one other place in the Old Testament. And the word is ark. 
Literally, the baby is put in an ark. And that ark is the same word that's used about Noah and the ark. The, the story you might remember of God protecting his people from the waters of death. And so as we hear this, that, that this baby has been put in an ark, we're supposed to understand that what's happening to baby Moses is not just an accident. It's not just a coincidence. It is God with this ark saving his own. Because think about what we just told about the story. Isn't it just an amazing coincidence that you have this baby who was put in the water and it just happened to be that the one person who had the power to save him was the one who showed up for a bath a few months, a few hours later. And that this one person, rather than being like her, her dad, Pharaoh, has compassion and has this plan and this baby is actually going to be raised in her own, in his own home. It's not a coincidence. This is God stepping in. And just like he saved Noah, he is saving this child from death. And we see that again and again if we just look. Many of you, I know, have experienced moments where in desperation you have asked God for something in prayer and something remarkable takes place. It doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes God answers our prayer by telling us to wait, but sometimes he does something and it's amazing. And, and there's a part of us that starts doubting and saying, maybe I'm just imagining this. But deep down we realize God has shown himself to us in his faithfulness. Again, it's like, it's like the curtain is pulled back and we see this, this deeper reality for at least just a moment. Well, there's this third aspect to the story that invites us to look further. And, and to, to see it, I, I, I want to quickly recount the story of Jacob, and you'll understand why I'm doing it in just a moment. So, so Jacob, back in Genesis, remember, Jacob is the great-grandfather of all of Israel. His name actually becomes Israel. He's the grandson of Abraham. And, and Jacob does something where he actually pursues something good, but he does it the wrong way. And as a result, he has to flee in terror. He goes until he's in the middle of nowhere, and he ends up kind of placing himself by a well, and some women shepherds come out, and he helps those women shepherds to water the sheep, and the family of the women shepherds is so impressed that Jacob is brought into the family business, and he marries the women shepherds, and he is there as a shepherd in wilderness for years. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because that, of course, is exactly the story that Moses entered into. Moses, we're supposed to understand as we are reading this, is just following in the footsteps of Jacob. It's the same thing. And the reason that's important is in this time where Jacob is in this exile, in this wilderness, he comes to learn something incredibly important. There's this moment where Jacob is under the stars going to sleep in the middle of nowhere, and as he falls asleep, he is given this vision and the vision is of this great stairway that goes all the way up, and there is God at the very top of it. There's angels coming up and down, and the stairway is touching down right by him. And he hears God speak to him, and, and God says directly, I am with you. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And so Jacob wakes up from the vision and he wakes up changed. Everything around him feels different. Here's what he says. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
How awesome is this place? It's like, as he looks around him and sees the rocks and the bushes and the ground, things that seemed so substantial before, now to him feels almost transparent, like, like thin tissue paper where there is a light behind shining through and he realizes that everything is imbued with a deeper significance because God is here. And so Moses now, he is following in the footsteps of Jacob. And just as God was with Jacob, we know what's true of Moses, but it doesn't seem like Moses recognizes it. There is no awareness that we see of Moses realizing that God is with him. He doesn't realize that there is more to his story than failure, that God is the one who gave him life, that God is the one who saved him from the death of the water, that God is the one who brought him here. He doesn't see the deeper reality. And I wonder how many of us are just like Moses. How many of us are unaware that God is in this place? Well, we get to the end of chapter 2, and there's this interesting moment where really the writer decides that he's going to pull back the curtain for us. He stops telling the story of Moses, and he wants to tell us what's actually going on from a heavenly perspective. So it says that during these many days, and these many days are the many days where Israel has been crying out and feeling the suffering of slavery. These days are the many days where Moses is just wandering as a shepherd in the wilderness. During these many days, what is actually going on? What well, says, as the people of Israel are crying out, here's what no one can see, but what is really true, God is hearing their cry. God remembers his promises. God, even though they don't recognize it, sees them, and he knows. Let me tell you, that continues to be true as we are crying out at times, as we don't know what's going on. If we could just pull the curtain beyond, God, we would see, sees us, and he's committed to us, and he knows. So this curtain that has been pulled back for us then is pulled back for Moses. I'm going to go a little bit further than the reading because we didn't have enough time to read the whole passage. But when we get to chapter 3, and kind of we get this kind of resolution of this story because Moses continues to wander as a shepherd and one day, and it's just a normal day, nothing extraordinary for him, but he happens to notice in the distance that there is a bush that's on fire. That's not that unusual. It might have been a dry season, maybe lightning hit it. So he just keeps an eye on it to make sure it doesn't spread. But what surprises him is that it just continues to burn. It doesn't spread, but it doesn't die out either. And so he decides to walk over. And in that moment, something happens that will forever change his life. He hears a voice. Moses, do not come any nearer because this is holy ground. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I want you for a moment just to try to imagine something. Imagine it's, say, Tuesday at 1 p.m. I don't know what you're doing Tuesday. Maybe you're at work in the office or maybe doing chores at home or maybe you're at school. Imagine, though, in that moment of complete ordinariness, you hear God speak to you. Not just some sort of thought that's in your mind, but audibly 
loudly, unmistakably, where you know God is speaking. Would you tremble? Would you suddenly feel differently about everything? I am sure that that is exactly what is happening to Moses. He is trembling, and the world around him, too, suddenly seems transparent like thin tissue paper with the light of something deeper and realer shining through, and he realizes that God is in this place. And the voice of God continues, I have heard the cries of Israel. I have seen their suffering, and I will redeem them. And I am going to send you to bring my people out of Egypt. And I wonder if in that moment, as Moses hears that, if he hears this tape that has been rolling in the back of his head for years, who are you? Who made you prince and judge over us? I wonder that because he responds by saying, who am I to God? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? And here's what God says, but I will be with you. Isn't that an interesting answer to the question, who am I, but I will be with you? Moses, your primary identity is not that you're Hebrew or an Egyptian. Your primary identity is not that you're rich or poor. It's not even that you are a failure. Here's who you are. You are the one that I know and that I am with. You are the one I have always been with. I am the one who brought you into this world. I am the one who saved you through the waters. I am the one who brought you into this wilderness. And I am the one who will lead you so that you might bring these people out of Egypt. That is the deeper reality that Moses had been missing and now he could see. And that changed everything. You know, so many of us walk through our days just unaware. We're unaware of the very fact that our existence itself is a declaration of God's goodness. We're, we're, we're ignorant when we are surrounded by glory whether it is the warmth of a shower in the morning or the quiet joy of a sunset or the miracle of someone loving us, it is God's glory crying out to us to take notice. As we experience delight and pleasure, as we are humbled by grief, it is God calling us, inviting us to see this deeper reality. And he has done more than that. He has broken through into this world. For us, not through a vision of a staircase, for us, not through a burning bush. He's done something far greater than that. He has become one of us. Every moment of Jesus' existence, as he lived, as he walked, as he acted, as he died, as he rose again, these were all moments that pointed us to a deeper reality. Jesus says, you see me and you see God. In Jesus, we see the righteousness of God. We see his loving forgiveness through Jesus' death. We see his beauty. And when we really understand what the cross is, we see what God said to Moses, he also says to us, I am with you. Yes, you have failed me. Yes, you have sinned against me. But I am 
for you. I gave my son for you. This is the deeper reality. Now, some of you this morning might come here not knowing what to think. You just know that the busyness that surrounds us is not enough and there is something more. I want to invite you, like Moses, to stop and look. To look at this man, Jesus. To look at his life. Because in him, you, we, see the deeper reality. You know, if there is one application point to this passage, as I said, we're being shown here more than we're being told, but if there's one application, I'd suggest that it is a simple word. There's a word that is repeated as a command more than any other in the Bible, and that simple word is behold. Behold. Look. See. Look beyond the hype, look beyond the buzz, look beyond the here and now, and see God as he invites you to recognize the deeper reality that he is here and he is with you. And the way we begin by beholding is we come to God in prayer. So I want to invite you even now to spend some time praying to the God who is right here with us asking him to open our eyes, and even where it's appropriate, confessing where we have failed to put our trust in him. And then I will lead us in a time of confession in a little while. Would you please join with me in silent prayer? Brothers and sisters, as we, come, or as we are in the presence of a God who knows us, let us openly confess our sins in assurance of his forgiveness. Together, merciful God, our maker and our judge, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news from 1 Peter. Friends, through Christ you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to God.